I don't know how many of you guys have done Ancestry.com, uh, looked up your own history, right? And uh, I can remember a few years ago, actually, it's probably been five or six years ago, uh, I got Lisa one of that as a Christmas present, and so she did that, and as she was looking at her family uh, tree, then I was like, ah, I got to see where I'm from. I thought I knew pretty well, and as I looked up the the ancestry there, um, there were some things I was not surprised by, and then there were a few things that I was surprised by. And as I looked at that, I remember uh, my mom was very curious as to what we found. And so we knew that we had family or ancestry that went back to very close to kind of uh, the, the first settlers into what is now America. And, and so we had this other side of me that was not up on the Pennsylvania coast of being coming in, but it was down on the, in the Alabama area. And uh, yes, roll tide, as Robin said. And my mom's only response as she looked at both, she goes, oh, we're the Pennsylvanians, your father's family's from Alabama. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, it was a part that as we laughed about it and joked about it, and you have to know my parents to understand why there's humor in that, but the... The, the beauty of that was is that there was a surprise in there of just kind of knowing and understanding where I'd come from in terms of ancestral lineage. Well, this morning we're going to actually be taking a moment and we're going to be looking at who Jesus is. We're going to see his ancestry and why it's important and we're going to understand his ancestry as Luke has revealed it to us. And my hope this morning is as you understand this kind of historical framework for Jesus, you will see that he is the confirmed Son of God, Son of Man, and Savior. And so we're going to dive right into the text this morning. I want to encourage you that there is something unique about this text. I also want to encourage you that it's a list of genealogies. And as you dive into it, it's easy to go past it and kind of skip past names and skip past the study. And yet God says that His Word, all of it is inspired. And so as a result of that, that means that these, this, ans- this, this ancestral detail, this genealogy, has important value for us to understand. That there is something unique about this genealogy that God wants us to understand about Him. And so we'll be looking at that together. And what we'll also be seeing is just this brief mention of His baptism. But these will provide the framework for basically two confirmations that He is the promised Messiah. So let's go ahead and stand as we read God's Word this morning. We're going to start in verse 21 of chapter 3, and this is what it says. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mahat, 
the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattanias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsi, the son of Nagai, and the son of Math, the son of Matthias, and the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Janan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shutil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kossam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mahat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mataha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, and the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arxfazad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us this genealogy for a reason. You've showed us, God, a picture of your baptism for a reason. Father, confirm in our hearts this morning that you truly are the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we know and understand why it is so important that you are God, Jesus, and you are man, Jesus. Father, where our brains may twist in faith, may our faith be led by your Spirit, and may you grant understanding that is beyond this world, but solely of you. Father, may our lives be submitted to you this morning and surrendered in praise because of the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, move me out of the way this morning and bring your word forth in power. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. This passage declares to us that Jesus is both the Son of God and Son of Man, confirming Him as our promised Savior. Jesus is both the Son of God and Son of Man, confirming Him as our promised Savior. Jesus is the confirmed Savior. That's who we worship. Jesus, our confirmed Savior. Now, up to this point in our study in Luke, we've witnessed the pronouncement of Jesus 
is conception. We know that the angel appears to Mary. We have witnessed the announcement of his birth where we have shepherds out in the field and they see the star and angels appear to them and they come and they see the baby Jesus. And we see the uniqueness of his teaching in the temple as an adolescent. That he is broken away from his parents on a journey to Jerusalem. And he's in the temple and he's teaching. And it says that those scribes, those that were in the temple, were amazed at his understanding. And we're told in Luke 2.52, the last image that we have of Jesus here, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So this is where we're left off with Jesus. An adolescent growing in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Now here in our passage this morning as our first encounter in the Gospel of Luke with Jesus as an adult. And we're told in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Now this is interesting. In fact, it should cause us to pause for a moment. John's baptism, as we saw last week at the first part of chapter 3, was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It identified one who needs to turn from sin and receive forgiveness of their sin. It was that they acknowledged the depth of their own sin and that they were in need of a Savior of that sin. But Jesus is without sin. So why in the world would he come to be baptized? Well, Matthew 3, verses 14 and 15 actually provides us the context for that. You see, John had the same question. In fact, when Jesus said, I want to be baptized, John's like, nope. Nope, why would, you baptize, why would I baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus' response is, I need to be baptized by you, right? No, he doesn't say that. John said that. Jesus says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John says, listen, I should be baptized by you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no. No, actually, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus is baptized to identify with sinners. He's come to take on the sin of the world and die for sinners in their rightful place. He's actually acknowledging the need for righteousness in sinners. Now, He is their righteousness, but He is also the one who is taking on all of their sin. That is why He has come. He's come to take all of their sin and to take the rightful punishment for their sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake He, that is God, made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. R.C. Sproul puts it simply. He says, His baptism proclaimed that He had come to take the sinner's place under God's judgment. Jesus was baptized identifying with sinners, saying, yes, you have sin and you need a Savior. I'm the Savior who's come, but I am taking on all of your sin. I will be the perfect Lamb, but I will take the weight of all of your sin. 
John MacArthur continues that it is as if Jesus is saying, this is what God has asked righteous people to do, and I'll do it because I do everything that is required by God. You see, those that were going into a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins were saying, we need a Savior. But they were committing, if you recall, they had to bear fruit of that repentance. They were turning from their sin. It was the posture of their heart so that when they saw the Savior, they could then give their life to the Savior in faith and having His righteousness imputed to them. That is Jesus. Jesus is the one who will impute His righteousness to us. And in his baptism, he is saying, listen, I am taking on all your sin. I can identify with you. It's important here. One of the things that next week will be tackled in in, in chapter 4 is the fact that Jesus faces this temptation. But when Jesus comes, he comes as a perfect human lamb. He didn't pull on his divinity to walk in righteousness. He relied on the Holy Spirit, the very thing that he grants the believer upon salvation. The very one. And that's important to understand that God grants his spirit for that and that God himself in Christ, still required to live, Jesus to live a perfect human life. He does it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he can identify with the sinners, not because he is sinful, but because he will take on all of their sin. All of our sin. So following his baptism while he's praying, in verse 21 through 22, we're told that the heavens were opened to the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, John's repentance here, this baptism of repentance, provided the framework for salvation. Repentance precedes faith. The baptism of Jesus actually provides us with the historical confirmation that He is the promised Savior. The first way that we see that is we see this promised Savior confirmed first at the baptism, at His baptism. Because He is the Son of God. This is what God says. He says, You are my beloved Son with whom you I am well pleased. So if you picture this for a moment, Jesus has been baptized, he's praying, and we're told that the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. Now, is the Holy Spirit a dove? No. It comes upon him like a dove. It is a visual representation of the Spirit coming upon Jesus. It is a mark of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some force as some would like to believe Him to be. He's not Unagi, as Ross Geller said in the episode of Friends. 
He's not some mystical, whimsical, gas-like creature. He's the third person of the Trinity. And we're told in 1 John 5, 6 and 9, it says, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. So the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, testifying that this is the Son of God. But God Himself, the Father Himself, testifies that his, this is His Son. Psalm 2.7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This is speaking of the Messiah. Today, I have begotten you. Those that heard this would have seen that the Father had already said previously that there would come a moment where the Father would declare over the Son, you are my son. And it is fulfilled in this moment. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So Isaiah does the same thing. He says, listen, you're going to know my Messiah because not only am I going to speak of him, but I will put my spirit upon him. The beauty of this is that God does not leave us guessing who the Messiah is. He fulfills it clearly. And so it's affirmed by the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the Father. It's affirmed by the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the Father. The fact that Jesus, God, is affirmed by the Holy Spirit and the Father You see, God sent His Son into the world. If you recall, His name given by the angel was what? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was not an ordinary man. He was God in flesh. And the beauty of that is because He is God in flesh, we can know who God is like and what God is like. And that is Jesus. We have to look no farther than Jesus to know God. In fact, we should look no farther than Jesus to know God. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the first confirmation then occurs at the baptism. And it shows that He is God. Now verse 23 continues, Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age. So 
the baptism actually marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew and Mark actually speak of the fact that after his baptism, he goes out and he tells people to repent and believe. But this is important. It's important because when we get into this section, the second section of this text, there's something that's really happening in this genealogy. Mark spends a lot of time, or much larger, much I should say, a lot of time, but a more significant amount of time, giving some details to his baptism. Matthew goes on a little further. Luke carries this small little portion and dives straight into the genealogy. Now. He tells us here that his ministry began when he was roughly 30 years old. It's important to note that Numbers 4.3 tells us that priests' duties began at the age of 30. Another unique thing, in 2 Samuel 5.4, we're told that David's kingship starts at the age of 30. We're even told that Joseph that his work in Egypt begins at the age of 30. There's a point that I believe Luke is connecting here in and through the genealogy that Jesus is king and he's priest and he's prophet. That this will be and is the Messiah. And so like the priests who work in the temple, and like David of who he is of the lineage line, and who of whose king he will sit or throne he sits on, this is the appointed priest and king of God. And so begins this genealogy. And the genealogy is unique because the genealogy, unlike Matthew, which begins upward and works its way, well, it's, its way to David, is focused on the kingship of Christ. Luke, on the other hand, focuses on something entirely different. He works backwards all the way down to Adam and then to God. His emphasis is on Jesus' humanity in this genealogy. And so the second confirmation that we see then is that it's through His genealogy that He is the Son of Man. It's through His genealogy He is the Son of Man. Now, what's also unique about this lineage line is that they use this phrase right at the beginning, the Son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Is Jesus the son of Joseph? Joseph is Jesus' adopted father because God is the father of Jesus. And what then takes place here is unique. What's laid out is Mary's genealogy, not Joseph's. And so it begins, the son of Joseph, as was supposed, 
and it moves right into her lineage line and says, the son of Heli. And what we begin to see is a lineage line of Jesus' humanity through Heli. And it'll take us backwards. What's more important in this is that Mary herself was also of the Davidic and of the Abrahamic lineage lines. And you will see them converge. This would have been the argument when the Gospel of Luke was written that those who would have come after Jesus and challenged His humanity, that they would have come to. But there is nothing in the historical record that even remotely says that Jesus was challenged based upon the lineage line provided by His mother. It actually affirms that people understood what was being said. That Jesus was not only the Son of God, but that He was the Son of Man. And what Luke is trying to make the point of is, listen, if Joseph was his adoptive father, let me show you that Jesus was 100% human as well. And so what he is showing here is that God, that Jesus is God, 100% God, and Jesus is 100% man. Now that may seem weird, right? We deal with 100%, you can't have, that'd be 200%, not really, right? None of us would say that we are a 200% individual. We are 100% human, and 100% soul. It's not half and half. Not 50% soul, 50% human. That'd be odd, wouldn't it? But we are 100% human, 100% soul. In the same way, Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And so this genealogy shows that he's the son of man. First, it shows us that he's the heir of David. In verse 31, it says that he's the son of David. Romans 1, 1 through 4 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Was declared the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Spirits concerning His Son. God had provided a Davidic king. He had made a promise with David that His throne would last eternally. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's an heir of David. It shows, his lineage shows a legal right to the throne. Secondly, we see that he's the seed of Adam, excuse me, of Abraham. Genesis 15, we're told that God had made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant was that his people would be a multitude. In fact, Genesis 15, 4 through 6 and 13 through 15 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
And then verses 13 through 15 continues. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. God had made a covenant with Abraham that from his seed the nations would be blessed. Jesus is this blessing. Jesus is the one that comes to bless the nations. Galatians 3, 27-29 says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Wow. In Christ, we receive the blessing of Abraham. The abundance of Abraham. Abundance that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The seed of Abraham. This Jesus is not some made-up guy. But there is a historical record of his own genealogical track. That's what Luke's providing. He's saying, understand, you can relate to this Jesus. And because you can relate to this Jesus, you can relate to our God. And our God is a personal God. And then third, there... He's the second Adam for all mankind. He's the second Adam for all mankind. This genealogy finishes in a unique way. It says, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, it's important to understand that what he's not saying is earlier that he's the son of God, meaning capital S, that he is the divine God. What it's saying here is that he is actually in the human and creative line of father of the father. And so Adam, he comes before, and he says that he's the son of Adam. Now why would Luke emphasize this? Adam brought in sin into the world. In fact, the curse of Adam then plagues us today, does it not? That we inherit that sin. But what he was pointing out was something that was to come. You see, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all should be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The first Adam was flawed and failed. God created, and he entered into sin. The second Adam, that is Jesus, comes and does what? He redeems mankind. 
but by tying all of Jesus to Adam. What he's saying is all mankind can be saved through Christ. Not just Jew, but Gentile. All mankind is saved through Jesus. And his point is is that because his humanity is tied back, it is Jesus who breaks the curse of Adam. The curse that was on humanity. He is the one that knocks down the serpent, that crushes the serpent's head. It's part of what Timothy's talking about, or Paul is talking about to Timothy. The women are saved through childbirth. What he was specifically speaking about there is the birth of Jesus through woman and the crushing of the serpent's head. This is good news. And because of this lineage, we can see that this Savior isn't just for some other person. And this Savior isn't just tribal. And this Savior isn't for some ethnicity. This Savior is for all mankind. And that's the joy that we have. Is that we have a confirmed Savior who is for all mankind. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every, every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Matthew Henry says, He was both the son of Adam and the son of God, that he might be a proper mediator between God and the sons of Adam, and might bring the sons of Adam to be through him sons of God. That's the Jesus that we serve. His humanity is just as important as his deity. And because of this humanity, then we need to embrace this idea that we can confidently come to Jesus in faith, receiving grace and mercy of our understanding Savior. We need to confidently come to Jesus in faith, receiving the grace and mercy of our understanding Savior. Now, for those who haven't put their faith in Jesus yet, haven't repented from their sin and turned toward Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that. Come to Jesus in faith, receiving the grace and mercy of our understanding Savior. While He was fully God, He was also fully man. He can identify with your struggle. He knows the pain. He knows the suffering. We're told He knows the temptation. For those who have put their faith in Christ, are you confidently coming to Jesus in faith? Receiving grace and mercy from an understanding Savior? Or do you see Jesus far off in the distance as a punisher? As a God who doesn't care about the things that are taking place in your life that doesn't seem He even has a plan for what seems so devastating? 
Do you come to Him in boldness knowing that He understands your suffering and your pain? Do you come to Him with fervor knowing that He has been tempted and overcome that temptation in the power of the Spirit? Do you wake up in the morning praying for the Holy Spirit to give you His strength and His grace to overcome sin that works so desperately to find a root and a place to grab hold of in your life? Confidently come to Jesus in faith, receiving the grace and mercy of our understanding Savior. This is not a far off God. This is not a God who sits on a holy hill above looking down upon his people, his, his people with pity. This is a God who sits on his throne that looks on us with love, that sent His Son to us because of this love to be like us and with us, to experience all this world has to offer in its suffering and pain. And then grants us His Spirit so that we might live with the power of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That He granted us His Spirit so that we might live with the power of Jesus. That Jesus has granted us His Spirit. This Spirit, the one that Jesus relied on to walk perfectly on earth. God has granted us His same Spirit. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful gift. You see how God's humanity, or excuse me, Jesus' humanity matters? See, Jesus had to go as a perfect living sacrifice, one without blemish, to the throne. And he was presented his body fully and completely on our behalf. And it was because he was a perfect human sacrifice that the Father found His offering acceptable to mete out the wrath that was so desperately pointed at us. And when God chooses to raise Him from the dead, the power of sin is broken and the consequence of that death is put down for all those who repent and believe on Jesus. And so God is calling us here to come to Him confidently. Don't cower before our Savior, but come confidently to His throne. Hebrews 4 reminds us of that fact. It says this about Jesus. It says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
We go confidently to the throne. My hope this morning is that this week, while you walk understanding Jesus' divinity, that you walk this week understanding His humanity. And because of His humanity, you come boldly to the throne. Not looking to God and saying, God, I know you probably don't get this. Or, or God, I'm not worthy and I've screwed up again. But you come to the throne going, you knew I was screwed up and you knew I was going to screw up and you knew I was sinful and you came for me anyway and you suffered for my sake and all I can do, God, is come to you confidently pleading for your grace and your mercy knowing that you understand my weakness. That's the God that we serve. And that's the Savior we've been granted. May it be this week that we come boldly to the throne and we rejoice knowing that history in Christ's baptism and in his genealogy shows that he was fully man and he was fully God and he is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness this morning. Thank you for the goodness that you are the Son of God and the Son of Man. Thank you that you are our Savior, Jesus. God, may each of us come boldly to your throne this week, receiving the grace and mercy you offer as an understanding Savior. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.